Um, John is away this week. He is with his uh, eldest son, John, down at UNC uh, for their homecoming weekend, spending some time down there. So you get me this morning. Um, and we are in the middle of our series, The Reason for God. Um, and I was given the choice on what to speak on between two very hard topics, um, really hard topics. Um, and so the topic that we're going to talk about today um, really lends itself to a little bit more of a lecture or an academic kind of discussion, conversation. Um, and so that's kind of sometimes a hard thing to do in church. Uh, but what I hope to do today is to kind of give you some sort of uh, knowledge, some academic uh, ideas about the issue, but then also talk about it in more of a personal sense. Um, and so there's, let, let me give you a survey that's been done that I found kind of funny. A survey was uh, taken all across the nation, and there's been multiple ones done like this. And uh, the question that was asked to everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike, was uh, if you could ask God anything, what would you ask him? So the question for you this morning, if you could ask God right now anything you wanted and you would get an answer, what would it be? What the survey found, uh, that the number one question by far was why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow pain? Why does God allow evil? Um, and it's probably a question maybe you've asked before of why is this happening, especially if something's happening to you. Um, found it a little humorous, and they noted in there that if you were married, you were twice as likely to ask, why does God allow suffering? <laughs> little marriage joke. I told that to Melissa last night, and she just rolled her eyes at me. And <laughs> uh, but that is a question that a lot of us have. That's a question that um, I've talked about with my friends, especially my non-Christian friends, a lot. Uh, because it always kind of comes down to that, that question because of what's going on in the world today. Um, a book about Steve Jobs' life was written, uh, and in it they talk about his early childhood. Um, and in it, um, they said when he was about 13 or so, when he was young, his parents were making him go to church. They wanted him to have uh, some sort of faith and religion in his life, and so they took him to church. Um, and as he listened to the pastor preach, he came home one day um, and he saw the cover of a Life magazine and it had two starving children on the front of it. And so he takes it with him to church the next week and he goes to his pastor and he goes, Pastor, does God know how many fingers I'm going to hold up right now? Does he know I'm going to hold this finger up right now? The pastor goes, yeah, God knows that. He knows everything. And then he grabs the magazine and he holds that up. He says, does he know about this? And the pastor said, yes, Steve, he, he knows about that too. And he says, then why isn't he doing something about that? The pastor gave him the answer of, uh, you know, God has his reasons, but you really can't understand, uh, which was not good enough for Steve. And, and so it says that at that point, he stopped going to church and was done with religion. And that is the question we're going to talk about today because it by far um, 
if not answered correctly, is definitely a turnoff to the Christian faith. Because we say that God is all-powerful, that God is all-loving on one hand. We say that, he, that this is who he is. And then on the other hand, we look in our world, I mean, just look around, and you see the evil and the atrocities that are being committed. I mean, just read the newspaper, look online, right? Watch the news. It's all you see. War, right? Famine, disease. And so we have all of this on one end, and on the other end, we have this all-powerful, all-loving God, and we go, why isn't he doing something about this? And then the question comes that if an all-powerful, all-loving God, he wouldn't allow this, but this is what we have in our world today, this evil, this atrocity, this pain, this suffering, this loss, then this God that you talk about cannot exist. This has been a question that has been talked about for centuries. Um, a Greek philosopher wrote this. Hopefully I'll be able to read it properly. Um, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And that's the question. Then why call him God? That so many people face. Because they see the evil, they see the pain, and they go, I cannot call him God. I cannot even believe in a God because of this. A good, holy, righteous, powerful God would not allow this to happen. And this is what we're faced with. Uh, this is the question. It's a tough question. It's one I will give you some ideas on, but I by no means am going to be able to cover everything. Uh, but let me tell you, uh, I'll tell you this. I used to drive from Nyack um, down uh, here because I, when I first was uh, in college still up at Nyack, it's about an hour away, and I would travel down here on Sundays mornings, and I'd have to be here early to do Sunday school and stuff. And so I would have to be in the car, you know, 6.30, and I'd be driving down at 6.30 in the morning. There's not a lot on the radio. Um, but on 99.1, there was uh, this, Christ, this station that, uh, and program that produced speakers on it, and they would speak about, you know, or preach about God. And one of, the, one of the speakers was named Ravi Zacharias. If you love intellectual debates and intellectual thinking, this is the guy for you. Most of the time I would listen to him for about a half an hour and then I need to go like watch cartoons to kind of even it out. Uh, it's that kind of speaker. Um, even I was listening, I was telling someone, I was listening to him this week kind of preparing for this talk and I really like some of the stuff he says because it's so different than my way of thinking. Um, but I was sitting there like with a dictionary on my phone and I would stop, you know, listening and go look up that word and go, well, I think I kind of know, but I'm not sure. And he would string like eight or nine of them together. So it wasn't like, you know, you could just kind of figure it out. And, and so I would listen to him and coming down on Sunday mornings for a whole year, I would listen to him talk. And this is a guy that, uh, is, is Indian in descent, 
um, and really had a, a devastating kind of life prior to coming to Christ, coming to God and, and, and converting. And once he did, uh, he really wanted to understand the Bible and understand the Christian faith. And he really uh, is a very brilliant mind. Uh, he speaks at Harvard and Yale, travels the world debating uh, the Christian faith. Uh, just a really uh, smart uh, apologist. And in the, in the one talk that he gives, he, he was telling uh, that he was at, I don't know if it was Harvard or Yale, and he gave a talk on this topic that we're talking about. Why does God allow pain and suffering and evil in the world? And one of... The students come up afterwards, and he had like a question and answer time, and he, and he raised the question. He goes, I'm an atheist. Just kind of want to throw that out there. Uh, I don't believe in God. But since you do, how does God allow all of this? How does God allow all this pain, this evil, this suffering to take place? And like any great debater, uh, he comes back with a question, and he asked the student, he said, all right, you're asking me, that or are saying that there is evil and that there is pain and that there's suffering, that there's this kind of bad stuff. He goes, then you're also saying, if you're saying there's evil, there's things that maybe are morally evil on one hand, that there's something on the other hand that is morally good. And the student thinks about it for, for a second and he goes, yeah, yes, I agree with that. That's true, that there are certain things in this world that we look at and we say that is wrong, that's bad, that's not right, it's evil. And there's other things in the world that we would say are good um, and that there is some difference between the two, what is morally good and what is morally wrong. And so he continues, he goes, okay, if you say that there is morally bad on one hand, morally evil and morally good, then there has to be something to distinguish the two. The student agrees. Um, he goes, yeah, I agree with that. So, so Robbie goes, then what you're saying is there is some sort of uh, moral code or moral law, this absolute moral code or law that applies to all people in our very nature of who we are that distinguishes this is good and that is bad. And the student thought about it for a while and he goes, I, I agree with that. He goes, I agree with that. And then Ravi goes, well, if there is bad and good and there's something too that is in all of us that distinguishes this, this moral code or moral law, then who gives it? You would then have to assume, he said, that there is some sort of moral law giver. Are you following me? If you're saying there's evil, how do you distinguish that? You're then saying that there is good. Well, how do you distinguish between those two? There's some sort of law or moral law, right? Then if there's some sort of moral law for all people, then where did we get that? You would have to say that there is a moral law giver. And the student had a harder time accepting that one because he said he was an atheist. And if you say that there is a moral law giver that is giving okay, this law, okay, then there is some sort of God. And then Ravi goes, well, if you are unable to say that there is a moral law giver... Okay, stay with me. Then you are unable to say that there is any kind of absolute moral law. And if there is no absolute moral law, then there is nothing to distinguish between morally good and morally wrong and morally evil. 
And if we can't distinguish between good and evil, there is no such thing as evil. What is your question? Did you follow? If we go down that line of reasoning, now you can argue this all day long, but if you go down this line of reasoning that there is evil and I see it, that then assumes that there has to be good on the other hand to distinguish those. You need a distinguisher, which is the moral law, and somehow that has to be given, which is the moral law giver. Because if you don't believe in that and you go all the way down, then you are saying there is no evil and you can do whatever you want, which means if I stood up here right now and took a baby and butchered him, you couldn't say anything. My son did not like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Even a the three-month-year-old knows that that's wrong. <laughs> Holy smokes. We worked on that last night, right, Melissa? <laughs> you pinch him when I say that. Um, <laughs> what I said was horrible, right? And most of you all, until... Uh, Kobe just gave us a little chuckle. Most of you were like, that's all. You shouldn't have even said that, okay? You shouldn't even talk about that. We would all say that's so wrong. But if you're saying there is no evil, then you cannot say that's wrong. And then if that is your worldview, is that even a worldview that is livable? Think about you would have to, if you lived out, there is no evil, there is no wrong. To me, that is an unlivable worldview. And so if I'm going to say, I, that's illogical, I can't take that, I'm going to follow the train of reasoning the other way and go, there is a difference, there is a distinction, we are given some sort of moral code, there then has to be somebody that's giving that moral code, then the question changes, not to, uh, or from, there's all this suffering and pain, so there's no God, now the question is, there is some sort of God, why is he allowing that stuff? And now the Christian worldview does have an answer for that. Because when someone says, a skeptic goes, how could your God create a world that looks like this? You can answer, he didn't. Right? Dina, would you put that first verse up there? This is like Sunday school for you guys. I teach Sunday school a lot, right? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God, being this all-powerful, all-loving God, creates, okay, the earth. If you take the Christian worldview, and he creates it, and it was very good. Meaning there wasn't any issues with it. There wasn't any problem. There wasn't any pain or suffering. But then we mess it up. We change the script. We change what was planned for us. And so now a skeptic might say, well, if your God is all-powerful and all-loving, also, we also call him all-knowing, and if he is all-knowing, then why did he let this world play out as it's playing out? Why didn't he change the, from the very beginning 
Adam and Eve's choices. I brought a little toy. He's my best friend. His name is Scout. Does anybody have Scout at home? Nobody? He's, he's, he's the best. Um, we spend a lot of time together. He tells me all sorts of sweet things. Um, let's see if I can get him to say one. I'm getting a little hungry. May I have a snack, please? I bet he wants blueberries. I really like blueberries. Oh, I love blueberries, too. That's crazy. He likes blueberries just like me. He says some other stuff to me all the time. Hey, I Scout. Love you, oh, you. Dude. He loves me? I don't think we heard that. I was talking. I love you, dude. I'm I love you, dude. You can program your child's name into this, and they don't have Prescott. How ridiculous is that? <laughs> so instead, I get dude. <laughs> I said goodnight to him when he was a kid. I go, goodnight, Prescott. He goes, goodnight, dude. He says all sorts of fun things, and he barks. Scout is not my best friend. And despite what Scout will tell you, Scout doesn't love me. He'll, he'll keep saying it. If I squeeze him three times, he'll say it again. I love you, dude. He doesn't love me. Why? He has no choice. I plugged them in. I put in the phrases that I want. I put in the name that I want. I pushed it back in. I zipped them up. And I keep squeezing them to hear that he loves me. I love you, dude. But it's not love, right? It's not love because there is no choice. For you to love means that you have to have the freedom to choose. There is no love without the freedom to choose because otherwise you're a scout, right? You're a robot. And so we learn about God. Better make sure he's off. He'll distract you if I, I let him sit up there. There we go. We find out in Scripture about God's character all over. But the overarching theme of who God is, the main characteristic uh, in the Bible that we find is what? Dina's going to put it up there, and you already know it. Whoever does not love does not know God, because why? Because God is love. This is the highest characteristic that we are told about God, that God is love. And so... Follow me on this now. If God is love, and because he is love, he created you through love, and he also created you in his image, right? Remember, he created mankind in his image, male and female, he created them. And so a loving God creates you and wants to give you who he is, and that is love, then he also has to give you the possibility to choose love or to not love. Follow me with this, right? If he wants you to be able to have this loving relationship between yourself and God, he wants you to have this loving relationship between yourself and other people on this planet, 
then you have to have the choice on whether to love or to not to love. But if you're given that choice, okay, to love, we're given that choice then not to love, and what happens when we don't love is all around us. When we choose the direction that we want to go and we choose something that was not intended, we create this mess. Instead of obeying God and loving one another, we disobey God and we hate each other, and then we wonder why there is so much pain, suffering, and evil in the world. I've seen this played out um, in some of the students that have come through my ministry. Um, I was trying to count up how many students have, have come through kind of the doors here. And I'm somewhere between 150 and 200 kids that have come through during my time. Now, some of those students, some of you guys are sitting in here today. Uh, some of you have been around since sixth grade um, and have worked all the way and graduated. Uh, some students I see for a semester, half a year, and then they're gone and I never hear from them again. You know, some kids I see when they're in sixth grade and then I see them when they're in 12th for a little bit. But between all of these kids, here's what I've seen, and this is just for me personally. I have seen students have just incredible gifting. We have had these incredible athletes who just have all the talent in the world. We've had students who were like fantastic artists and incredible dancers. Uh, we've had students that were so smart, I, was, I couldn't wait till they graduated so they'd stop correcting me. <laughs> they did that after last service. But you see this as, as and probably in your own kids, right? You see the difference and the uniqueness and their ability. And some of them you look at, now for any student in the room, you are this student, and you go, they have all the talent in the world. They could change the world if they wanted to. With their gifting, they could change the world. And then some other students, maybe not quite as much, but still a lot, you go, man, they could probably change the states. They could change the U.S. And still others, kind of, you keep going down there, and, well, maybe you could change the state. Maybe you could change the county or the town. Or maybe you just could change the school. And then there's the middle school boys, and you hope that they can just change their clothes because <laughs> they stink. If you have a middle school boy, make them change their clothes. They stink. <laughs> but in all seriousness, you see this, that some of these students come through, and I, I really believe they could change the world if they wanted to because you see the potential in them. But the crazy thing that I've seen over and over is that students that have this super high upside the ability to change the world for this positive, uh, good, loving way also have the possibility to change the world for the negative. Because a kid, or me and you for that example, that can lead others 
towards Christ can also lead others away from Christ. And I've so often seen that some of the kids with the highest upside sometimes have the highest downside. And when they choose to not love, when they choose a different path, it is destruction. It's heartbreaking. For some of you parents, you probably know what I'm talking about. My child could change the world if they wanted to, if they chose to. They have all the abilities and giftings. But instead, they, their life is, is just like flaming out. You and me, when God looks at us, this is how I picture God looking at us. As one of the students that have the high upside, God looks at you and goes, he... She could change this world. I've given them all the ability. They have all the possibility for love. They could change the world. But what do we choose? We don't choose love. And then our world pays because of it. The best way I saw this play out a little bit is I watch a lot of nature shows um, with my son. And there's this one about polar bears. So if you want to know about polar bears, I'm the guy to talk to. And this episode about polar bears was like, you know, a BBC presentation. And the speaker was, you know, excellent and was narrating this life of a polar bear. And in this life, it, it shows the polar bear hibernating and having two cubs and then waking up from hibernation and needing to get food because, you know, that they had used up all the fat reserves, right? And they needed food so it could take care of its cubs. But the food is far away. And the food keeps getting far away because the ice is continuing to melt. And so the distance the bear has to travel now is increasing every year. And eventually, it shows this bear swimming miles and miles in the open ocean to try to find food, seal. And eventually, it finds some seals. Well, it doesn't find seals. It finds walruses. But because it's so hungry, there's no other option, it starts to attack the walrus. Have you ever seen a walrus? They're just like straight blubber, right? It was The bear couldn't bite into them, couldn't grab them. They just tossed this huge polar bear to the side. And at the end of the show, it's, it's, actually, it's awful. He digs a hole kind of in the snow, lays down in it, and dies. Right? He digs his own grave and dies. And then the, the narrator goes, you killed the polar bear. I'm like, oh, okay, I need to go and repent. <laughs> like, I'm going to go to church on Sunday and go, I killed the polar bear, please forgive me. Um, but what the point he starts to make is that as human beings have, okay, and I think most of you would agree, kind of taken over the world globally, we have also pushed, okay, other things out, right? I mean, it's just natural. You think there was always pavement underneath us? 
right? There wasn't. And so we push other things out, and those things eventually don't have space and they die, right? You can go look at all of the extinct animals, right? So many of them, and most of it's because, right, their, habitation, their habitat is lost because of the rainforest being cut down or, or whatever the case is. And so the point I'm trying to make is that we'll often look at those things and go, yeah, I guess I'm responsible for that, but we don't really care because it's not really hurting me, right? If I want mahogany cabinets, I don't really care about the rainforest being chopped down. I have beautiful cabinets, okay? But our, okay, our lives, our choices start to play out, not just to animals, right, and the woods and the jungles, but they start to play out between each one of us. And they start to play out in a way that now, because of my choices, not only are my choices causing me pain, but my choices are causing you pain. Your suffering is my fault. Because I am not choosing love. Are you following me with this? Do you understand what I'm saying? We'll go all the way back. Right? We say that there is a difference between good and evil. There has to be some sort of law or code. There has to be this code giver. If this code giver is this God that we talk about in the Bible, why did he create this? Well, he created this because he wants love. It's his characteristic. It's who he is. And so he creates you with that love, well, that possibility for love, but it's still a choice. And when we choose not to love, pain, suffering, and evil come out. Now, I say all of that, and you could be sitting there going through um, some sort of devastating loss right now of a family member, of a relative. You know, this summer, you know, as I was thinking, three or four people, you know, we did funerals for here. Um, and so if you're in pain right now, it is hard to step back and try to look at this question because you're part of the question. It's hard to get perspective on it. It's hard to hear some sort of academic talk about how God is all-powerful and he wants you to love and that's the reason. I think of the story of Job in the Bible and Job loses everything, right? And is suffering and is in turmoil and pain. And what is his buddies come and sit down with them and go like, yeah, you probably messed up. That's why you're suffering. Or here, let me tell you how to fix it. Have you ever had those friends that have done that to you? Instead of sitting down next to you and suffering with you, they start to tell you what's wrong or how to get better quicker because your grieving process is taking too long. You ever had that? And so I don't want to make light that there are real personal issues going on right now with a lot of you, and it's hard to see any kind of perspective on this question. We're going to watch a short video that I think takes this kind of talk from academic to a little more personal. Uh, so, uh, Dina, if you want to cue that up, and we'll watch that. 
My son has had severe epilepsy since he was born. For 15 years, he'd have 10 to 20 epileptic seizures every day. And uh, our whole life was basically revolved around his disability. And yet I would pray for other friends who had sick children and it seemed like their kids got better. Um, but my son didn't. The one moment that redefined this question for me was probably in 2004 with the tsunami that happened in Asia. And just the sheer devastation of a natural disaster just brought me to my knees. And where I was at the television saying, God, seriously, why? The question, how can God allow these bad things to happen, I think is a, it's a reality. It's a hard, hard question. In fact, maybe the hardest question God allows humankind to make their own choices and ultimately they can lead to some magnificent things. I mean, you have a look at the extraordinary things, extraordinary things that human beings have been able to accomplish uh, in the freedom and autonomy that God has given us. But the downside or the dark side of this autonomy or this freedom is that we can just create the most vile and contemptible and cruel and vicious outcomes of being human. A lot of what we see in the world, in my opinion, of what I've experienced, is, you know, you have generations of men, you know, women, father, mother, children, when they make the choice not to love, love God, love each other, you play that out and um, there, there's a lot of pain that comes with that. The suffering that comes from nature or earthquakes or hurricanes or things like that, I, I find harder to explain. And uh, I guess you've got to live with the mystery of it. Um, I think the Christian answer is the best one. When you go out east into the eastern religions, it doesn't make any sense of suffering at all. Uh, it's kind of like suck it up. It doesn't make any. It doesn't attempt to try and make sense of it or derive meaning. So the Buddhist answer, for instance, and I have great respect for Buddhism, the Buddhist answer says it's not real. Um, suffering has no reality. Well, you know, I, I think you tell that to a suffering person, and I don't think it makes sense to them. The Christian answer actually doesn't answer everything. Uh, particularly when you're suffering. Um, but it is the best one around, uh, without a doubt. About five years ago, I was pregnant, and I heard the words that no mother ever wants to hear, your child is not going to live. Um, on April 7th, 2008, I delivered a little girl who was alive when she was born. Her name was Audrey Caroline, and she lived for two and a half hours. We loved her a lifetime's worth, but a short amount of time. Watched her get her first bath and a little haircut. But later that night when everyone was gone and it was just my husband and I alone with her, as time went on, we knew that we were going to have to call a nurse to come in and take her. I had to hand my daughter to someone and watch her be taken away from me, knowing that I wouldn't see her again this side of heaven. And as I lay in that hospital bed, and everything in me wanted to just bang on all the buttons and tell them to bring her back. 
I really called out to God in a way I never had before. And I just said, I can't do this. And I need you to just be here right now. I just need you to hold me. He did. He did. I will tell you that in that moment, I saw um, a side of God that I've never experienced and have never forgotten since then. Just his faithfulness to one girl in a hospital room who was devastated. And I just really felt that he was there. Sorry. When I talk to people about the stuff they've gone through, to be honest, the, for me, the best answer and the, the most appropriate response as, as a Christian, as a believer, is to cry too. To hold the hand and to weep too. And then to introduce them to someone who helps pull you out of a pit. And not in some weird, messed up, quick fix kind of a way. I get really annoyed um, when we Christians propose that as an answer, as like the quick in a box fix that changes everything. Um, but... There's a there's a phrase it's in one of the books of the Bible which talks about I uh, and it's this it says I know my redeemer lives. And um and that part of the Bible has always won me because it talks about this person who buys back all that's been lost um through your own helplessness um through violence through your own foolishness and um that's who I met. <laughs> Someone who who helped me over over years and blood sweat and tears um, bring back that was what was lost. We have seen God use our son's sickness um, in amazing ways, and people have found faith in Jesus through his life. And I guess maybe God does uh, use some people and their disabilities and their struggles to help other people to find God. You know, I, I do think like if there really is a heaven and if what is said about heaven from the words of Jesus is true and that there, my son will never be sick again and someday I'll see him as this perfect body in this perfect form and then Ryan looks at his life and we all see the amount of people that have been influenced by his life. Am I going to argue with what God did? Probably not. I'll probably be thankful that he allowed our family um, I guess, to, to struggle through. Um, and yet, why does he just help other people? I don't know, but I'm glad he does. I'm glad he just helps. I'm glad that no matter what we see, apparently God has some plan for that. We see that God actually comes to the planet. He actually lives among us so that he understands our suffering, our hurt, our pain. He understands it all. Then Jesus dies on the cross and in the mystery of faith all the junk of the world all the junk that's in our hearts all the junk that's in our relationships all of that junk dies with him so in the christian worldview god doesn't leave our world in the state that it is but actually is seeking to heal it and bring us back in the christian worldview god doesn't leave the world in the state that it's in but he's seeking to heal it and to bring us back I like as that video plays, you feel uh, some of the personal um, agony and pain related to this topic. That this topic, while it can be very academic, is very personal. 
because we all suffer through this. We all have loss and pain. But what the one lady said is, is, and what I like about it is that she goes, you know, when someone's in that, you don't go and try to give them a quick fix or, uh, you know, have all the answers, but you sit down beside them. And see, that is what Jesus does. In this world that we now have, because of our own choices and decisions to not love, and now in this suffering world, God looks at it and he doesn't just stay away. He doesn't sit back and go, well, should have made better choices. It says that he comes down that he walks among us and that he suffers among us. Like, remember the story just before he's going to be crucified and taken away and he's praying and he's praying to God and what does he ask him? He says, if it's possible, can you take this cup? If it's possible, can you take this cup? Because I know what's coming. I'm going to suffer. And then he says in the next one, do we have it? And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Another version of that is his spirit was in such anguish. He knows the suffering that is going to take place, that is taking place, right? And we get the final bit of that uh, as he's on the cross and he cries out, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is separated from the Father. Think of the pain that you feel when you're separated from a loved one, from a friend, from a child, from a spouse. Now, if we believe the Christian worldview in the Bible, God has always been this perfect love and unity within himself, and it is pulled apart. And he feels that pain. He feels that suffering. And so you have a God that comes down that is with you, that suffers next to you, that's sitting beside you as you're going through your loss, saying, I know, I understand, but I've made a way. One writer put it this way. Freedom makes a possibility for love. Love makes a possibility for pain. Pain makes a possibility for a savior. A savior makes a possibility for redemption. And redemption makes a possibility for restoration. That is the promise I have for you today. I don't have all the answers. I cannot tell you why you are going through what you're going through. I can't explain the devastation that happens after a tsunami and why God would allow that. But I can promise you if you hold true to the Bible and what it says is that he is going to restore everything. Because of that pain, 
we are going to have a Savior. We have a Savior. Because of that Savior, okay, he is bringing about redemption. He's changing the story. And because he's changing the story, he's bringing redemption, he is going to bring restoration to your pain and your loss and your suffering and the evil in this world. That's the promise you have. So the band's going to come up, um, and we're going to sing a closing song. Um, and the first part of the song is saying, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Help me to sing it with my heart that you are good. And so I would encourage you today, if you say, hey, I believe, Steve, what you just said. I do hold true to that. This is why we meet and this is why we sing. It's so that as that person's suffering next to you, you can stand beside them and say things that are true that you believe. That you can go, sometimes I can't believe. It's hard. Sometimes I feel like you're saying no. But I know you're good. I know you love me. And I know you're going to make a way for restoration.